opening God's Word to Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It's also printed in your bulletins. Reading from verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at, at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The word of the Lord. Let's continue our prayer. Father, we look to you for the promises, the promises that you made in your covenant. We are excited about the coming season of Christ coming to us, that Jesus is among us, and that we can have a relationship with you through him. We thank you, Father, for this time of year for remembering, and we ask, dear God, that you would not just allow us to hear the word, but also to move towards action. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ Church. I think it's still morning, right? 11.30. It's uh, good to worship with you today. Uh, for those of you who haven't met me, uh, my name is Daniel Aguiluz, and one of, I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Christ Church, though normally you don't see me worshiping with you on Sunday morning as I mainly serve our church plant, Grace Hill, in Belknap Lookout. If you haven't visited us yet, uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, we worship every Sunday at 5 p.m., so we will be worshiping tonight, Lord willing, of course. And, um, you know, we, it's a special time for us. We're getting ready to launch publicly. On the 23rd, we're going to have a big service. Of course, we would love to have you all, but we just can't, right? It's a small space. Uh, but if you maybe have a friend, a relative that... Uh, you wish you could bring here, but this, this friend works maybe and it's only come to an evening service. It would be a great time to bring uh, your friend or relative over. Um, the passage that we just read is one of the most uh, well-known prophecies in the Old Testament. 
And because it's so well known, it's easy for us to miss the surprising lesson that it's meant to communicate to us. So to highlight the lesson, let me give you an illustration. Imagine that you are a professional athlete. Imagine that you are part of a team that is in the middle of the playoffs. Uh, you've made it very far in the tournament, and now you're playing a very important game. If you lose, you go home. But you are losing the game. In fact, you are losing so badly, you're getting beaten so badly that you're starting to think that there's just no coming back in this game. But then the coach does something completely unexpected. He takes out of the game the best player of the team so that the worst player could come on the field. And uh, no, I didn't, I didn't misspeak, right? Uh, I really meant what I said. The coach is taken out of the game, the best player, so that the worst player could come in his place. What would you think if uh, your coach made that decision? You would think that, that he's gone nuts. You would think that he's gone uh, bananas, right? You would think that the stress of the game uh, just made him lose his mind. But... I think that the picture of God that we get uh, that emerges out of uh, the prophecy that we read from Micah is a little bit like the coach that I just described. Here's someone who makes uh, baffling decisions, who unexpectedly passes over the strong and mighty to choose the small and weak to accomplish his purposes. My goal for tonight is to get us to see why our heavenly coach acts in this way and also so that we will know how to respond uh, as players in his team. Like Andrew mentioned last Sunday, uh, tonight we're considering the type of people that we must be to welcome the God who's coming down we celebrate in the season of Advent. So with this goal in mind, I'm going to develop three points this morning, early afternoon. Uh, first, the Lord of the lowly in Judea. You can see these points in your bulletin. Number, point number two, the Lord of the lowly in history. And point number three, the Lord of the lowly in Grand Rapids. So let's start with the first point, the Lord of the lowly in Judea. My guess is that for most of you, uh, you first encountered the prophecy from Micah 5.2, uh, from the Gospels, maybe uh, hearing or reading the Christmas story that you encounter there. If you have read the Gospel of Matthew, you can see the story there of King Herod learning about the birth of Jesus from the wise men who came from the east, uh, looking for the Messiah. And of course, the Messiah is the long-promised Savior King for God's people, right? Uh, and Herod asks... He asks the Bible, the top Bible teachers of the day, where the Messiah would be born so that he could then go and eliminate the child that the wise men were seeking. And of course, the Jewish scholars point Herod back to Micah 5.2, the prophecy from Micah. But, you know, Micah is not an isolated promise. Uh, Micah, is part of, Micah 5.2 is part of the prophet's overall message. 
And uh, it took place in a very particular context. So um, let's go over this context, but just also just to make a point, uh, we read the first five, six verses of chapter five. Right now, I'm just going to focus for this sermon, I'm only going to focus on uh, verse two. And Lord willing, Andrew will come back to this passage next week to develop the second half. But let's look at the context now of Micah 5.2. As we've learned, right, Micah is prophesying to Judea. And Judea is the southern division of what used to be the one kingdom of Israel. And he prophesied during the 8th century before Christ in a time of great national distress for God's people. The precise context of this, uh, scholars think that uh, it's in the events recorded in 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 36. If you want details of the context, you can go to that. Broad picture is that Sennacherib, the ruler of the mighty kingdom of Assyria, had surrounded Jerusalem, the capital of Judea, to get Hezekiah, the Jewish king, to surrender. So Jerusalem was under siege, a time of great stress. You can see actually hints of this in verses 1, 5, and, uh, one, five and 6. Uh, for example, num number 1, it says, verse number 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. Uh, verse 5, it says, When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. And then you can see in your bulletin too, verse 6, it says, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. So all these are clues that uh, confirm that this is the context. So again, it's a time of great national distress. It is a time when God's people longed for God's deliverance. So God promises deliverance to them. However, the solution that God presents is not exactly what they would have hoped for. Let me read Micah 5, 2 again. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So God tells his people, look, I'm sending your way a deliverer. However, this deliverer will come from the most unexpected of places. Your current leaders in Jerusalem will not save you. The allies that you have made among the nations around you will not save you. Egypt will not save you. No army from heaven is going to come down to save you. No salvation will come from little Bethlehem Ephrathah. Now today, Bethlehem is... Uh, one of the main tourist attractions if you go to the Holy Land, right? I'm, I'm sure that some of you might have gone there. But at the time, you have to realize Bethlehem was just a, this little tiny town in the district of Ephrata. And just to give you a sense of how little this town was. In times of war, the different clans of Israel had to, prov to provide men for battle. They had to provide hundreds, thousands of warriors to go to battle. You can see this in places like Numbers 1. Well, Bethlehem was so tiny that Bethlehem was not counted among these clans that had to provide men. Just because it was so tiny, right? Uh, if they had provided all the men, probably just a couple dozen men that they had, 
would have gone, and that was the end of the, of the little town. It was tiny. And yet God says, I have chosen you, little and weak Bethlehem, to be the place from which my salvation will come. The Messiah, the great Savior King that my people need, will come from you. And we know that the ruler promised in Micah 5.2 is the Messiah for a number of reasons. Uh, for one, uh, if you look at 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 11, you see that the same Hebrew verb that is here in verse 2, translated as come forth, is connected in those other passages to the Messiah and to David's lineage, right? That's the first clue. Second clue, you notice that Micah's prophecy says that the ruler will reign over Israel. But as we already saw, this was a time in which Israel was divided, right? And David's descendants did not rule over Israel, but over Judea, the southern kingdom, from Jerusalem. So when it says here uh, that this ruler will rule over Israel, uh, Micah 5.2 is clearly not looking at the current leaders, but at the future ruler that would unite, reunite all of God's people. And that is, of course, the Messiah. Now, so it's about the Messiah, right? However, even though its, it's messianic character is clear, still, this would have been a promise that was very odd and mysterious to the Jews of the day. The reference to Bethlehem was a reference to uh, the Davidic line, right? King David came from little Bethlehem. But his descendants, right, the, the current uh, leaders of, of uh, Judea were not, were not ruling from Bethlehem anymore. They ruled from uh, Jerusalem. That's where uh, the palace was. But when Micah says that the ruler will come from Bethlehem, he is hinting at a new start to the Davidic line, a new start that would be as lowly and as humble as the first start when God first called young David from little Bethlehem. In fact, it is uh, precisely because Micah points back to Bethlehem as opposed to Jerusalem that some interpreters have speculated that maybe Micah is uh, he's, he has in mind a rejection of the Davidic line for a completely new star from a completely new royal line. But there's something in the text that really rules out that option. You see the phrase coming forth from old, from ancient days. That ancient days is a reference to the time of God's promise to David hundreds of years ago. So Micah's message is... God will fulfill his promise to David. God will deliver his people, but he will do it in an unexpected way. He will not use the current leaders who are in Jerusalem. He will not use the allies that the Jews have made uh, with the nations around them. God will not use an angelic host to come deliver them. No, he's going to go back to lowly, humble, insignificant Bethlehem. To bring, to bring about his salvation. Not just for the rest of Judea, but for 
all of Israel, for all of God's people. Time of distress. We are losing. We are getting beat badly. But our coach is calling into the game the weakest player in the team, the least skillful player at his disposal. The surprising thing is that it turns out that our coach has a long history uh, of calling on the weakest player of the team to turn the game around. So let's move on to the second point now, the Lord of the lowly in history. And the thing that we note here is that way before Micah issued his promise to Israel, to Judea, right, of deliverance coming from Bethlehem, way before God first called young David, time and again, God had chosen the small and the weak over the strong and the mighty to accomplish his purposes. Now, I'm going to just share with you a couple of examples but there are so many of these in the Bible that if I went through all of them, we would be here for the rest of, uh, of the evening. And there will be a conflict, right? Because I have to be at Grace Hill later. So just a couple of, just a couple of examples here. Um, first, right, um, even though God could have chosen any young and fruitful and fertile couple in the whole world to start his people, what does he do? He calls Abraham and Sarah an elderly and barren, highlight on barren, couple. He chooses a barren old couple to start a new people for himself. And then when this people is formed and he calls them out of Egypt, he tells them, he reminds them in Deuteronomy 7. We actually read this earlier. It was not because you were more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. Then during the time of the judges, when Israel had no king, one of the most uh, really remarkable stories is that of Gideon. He had an army of 32,000 men. And God says, that's too many. You are too, too strong. Bring that down to 300 so that I could use that against your enemies. You were too strong for God to use you, he says. And then, of course, when Israel finally asks for a king, God first gives them a king after their own heart. He gives them Saul, a man who was tall, handsome, and impressive, but only to reject him in favor of young David. Someone so unimpressive that Jesse, David's own father, did not think that David had any chance of being chosen. So he left them out in the field looking after the sheep when Samuel came to reveal God's choice. So this background of lowliness in Bethlehem, lowly uh, young David, rejected by his own family, God says, I'm, going, I'm coming back to this in Micah 5.2. I'm going back to David's humble origin in lowly Bethlehem to raise the Savior of the world. And of course, we know how God kept his promise. That's what we are celebrating here in the Advent season, right? The coming of the king. Well, 700 years after Micah's prophecy, the Jewish people were still suffering as a nation. They were no longer being oppressed by the Assyrians, but now they were under the control of the Romans. 
And God comes to this weak, still conquered people, chooses a poor virgin whose humiliation we read about in the Magnificat that we read uh, earlier in the service. A poor virgin in an obscure town who is engaged to a descendant of David whose lineage is no longer in power. Right back in the time of Micah, at least there was some of David's descendants on the throne. Now there's none. And she calls this virgin, she conceives a son, and then Mary and Joseph are forced by the circumstances God providentially brings them to Bethlehem so that the child could be born there in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. And this poor child from Bethlehem, from little Bethlehem, grew up to become an itinerant preacher who chose followers who were by the estimation of the most respected teachers of the day, the disciples of Jesus were, in their own words, uneducated, common men. In other words, unfit to teach others. These are the men that Christ chose. And then the followers of these men, the first Christians, uh, came from, and this is a description from a Christian source, Right, 1 Corinthians 1, it says that the first followers came from the foolish, from the weak, from the low, from the despised of society. Like I said, I could go on and on here bringing up more examples. My point is simply this. Our heavenly coach has a long history of calling on the weakest player in the team to turn the game around. And you know what? As baffling and as unlikely and indeed as impossible as it may seem, our coach did turn the game around by calling on the weakest players. God made human beings in his image so that we would know him as our father, so we would love him with our whole heart. But from the beginning, men and women have turned aside from God to pursue his gifts over him, the giver of these gifts. And at points, it seemed as if the knowledge of God would completely disappear from earth. You remember the time, the time of Noah. It says that God could, of all the men and women in the world, he could only find one person who feared him. And at other times, when God already had formed a people for himself, it seemed as his the enemies of this, of this people would wipe off uh, God's people from the face of the earth. As what happened with Sennacherib when they almost conquered uh, Jerusalem. But by calling on the weak of the world, our Heavenly Father turned the game around. How? Well, the tiny baby from lowly Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy became the most influential person in the history of humankind. The most influential person, not just in the history of Judea, not just in the history of Israel, of the whole world. Thanks to Jesus, this little remnant of Judea that barely survived Sennacherib's invasion, after many centuries became the greatest religious movement that the world has ever known. Thanks to the baby from little Bethlehem, billions and billions of men and women from every cor corner of the world have come to know and to love the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
and the God of Jacob. And the way that Jesus became the most influential person, the greatest leader in human history, was not by military might, as the people of his time expected, but by dying on a cross like a common criminal. The Lord from Bethlehem did not conquer by strength, but in weakness. Napoleon Bonaparte, one of the greatest generals in the history of the world, is supposed to have said, quote, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for him. End quote. Our heavenly coach did turn the game around by calling on the weakest players at his disposal. The Lord of the lowly in Judea became the Lord of the lowly in history. But what does that have to do with us, right? Um, well, let's consider now the third and last point, the Lord of the lowly in Grand Rapids. So why? Why does God choose lowly Bethlehem? Why does God keep on calling? Because we already saw that Bethlehem was not an isolated event. It's a pattern. We have a pattern here. This is the way that our God tends to act. Why does God keep on calling the weak and the poor of the world to accomplish his purposes? Is, is it because God somehow always blesses the poor and the weak for being poor and weak and always condemns the strong for being strong? And what does that mean for us? After all, we are not from lowly Bethlehem. We live in the United States of America. We belong to the greatest nation in the history of humankind, right? Well, thankfully, we don't have to speculate as to why God acts in this way. He tells us, and he tells us plainly. And I could go to a number of different passages, but I already alluded to 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to look at verses 25 to 31, where... Um, the point is made as clear as, any, as in any other passage. Here is what Paul writes. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let me read that again. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is slow and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things there are, so that, and here's the key, right? Here's the purpose clause. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that again, same point as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why did our coach swap the best player in the team for the worst one in the middle of a do-or-die game that we were losing badly? To remind us that until he became our coach, we really had no chance of winning the tournament. To remind us that what made us get this far was not our individual skill as players, but his coaching genius. Because of our tendency to be proud, we forgot that our success as a team depended on trusting on our coach's wisdom. We got far in the tournament and we thought, okay, this is the chance to show the world what we can do. So instead of focusing on the, our coach's instructions, each of us began to do our own thing and we got ourselves into a royal mess by swapping the best player of the team for the worst one in the middle of the game. Our coach is telling us, if we're going to win this game, you need to stop relying on what each of you can do on your own and start trusting me. Trust me. It's not your skill, but my coaching that got us this far. And of course, the Lord is not a coach, and life is not a game, but our dependence on the Lord is great. It's actually way greater than the dependence that any player or any team ever had for any coach. The truth is that in and of ourselves, we all, and that is, that includes everyone, we all are completely weak. We all are completely dependent on the Lord's blessing for everything that we are and everything that we have. Which is why the Apostle Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Can any of us take any credit for being born in this great nation? Can any of us take credit for the natural skills that we have? Can any of us take any credit for the loving parents that raised us and for the healthy environment that shaped us? But the sad reality is that we do. We actually take credit for it. We become proud. We become boastful. And, you know, bragging is not the only way to be boastful. There are more subtle ways to do that. And I, and I think we all fall, fall for them. I know I do. When we look down on people from a lower social class, we are taking credit for what we have. When we look down on people with different skin color, we're actually taking, in our hearts, we're taking credit for who we are. When we look down on people um, from a different country, different culture that we deem inferior, uh, we're taking credit for where we come from. When we look down on people who are not maybe as bright or as skillful as, as we are, we're actually taking credit for our intelligence, for our skill, 
when we look down on people who just don't think the way that we do, we're taking credit for our insight. When we look down on people who seem to be enslaved by different vices, we're actually taking credit for our own righteousness. I mean, see, you get the point, right? Anytime that we look down on others because uh, we perceive to be, to, have, to be more than they are, to have more, uh, more than they do, we're actually taking credit for that thing that we are proud about. Even though we're all weak, even though we're completely dependent on the Lord, we still become proud and arrogant. Even if, if not verbally, certainly we do in our hearts. And so to help us escape this sinful tendency that we all have, the Lord passes over the strong and the mighty. He passes over the great empires of history. He passes over the United States of America and chooses tiny, lowly Bethlehem in ancient Judea to bring his salvation to the world. And he does so to remind us that salvation does not come from our strength. That salvation comes from him. It does not come from us. It comes from his grace. He chooses the lowly, the weak, so that instead of us taking credit for what we are, for what we have, and look down on others so that we thank him for everything that we have, for everything that we are, and that we seek to spread his grace, to share the grace that we have received with others, especially with the need and the weak. In Paul's words, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that is in the Lord from Bethlehem, the Lord from lowly Bethlehem, who, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And here's to close how we could put this in light of Micah 5.2. Dwell in lowly Bethlehem to discover the superior strength of the Lord from Bethlehem. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks, Lord, for not leaving us to our own pride and boastfulness. We have a tendency to do that, Lord. We confess it. But you pass over the strong and mighty and you choose the weak and the tiny and the small to highlight that salvation comes from you, Lord. And we thank you for that. We ask that you help us remember that all the time so that we trust in you, so that we're humble before you and to others too. Help us, Lord, dwell in lowly Bethlehem so that we might discover the superior strength of the Lord from Bethlehem. Amen.